Welcome to Let's Finally Watch This, a podcast for casual movie fans who have always meant to watch classic movies. I'm your host, Nick Hayden. And I am your other host, Timothy Deal. We are in 1923 this Whoa. episode. We're time traveling? Oh, yes, absolutely. That's what we do in the podcast. That's true. And we are watching this episode, The Ten Commandments. Or we have already watched, I well, should okay. say. Okay. But we're talking about The Ten Commandments. But not The Ten Commandments you're thinking about. That's right. This is a black and white Ten Commandments. No Charlton Heston, no Yul Brynner, no color. Well, mostly no color. But Diesel B. DeMille is directing. He is the director still. So one thing is the same. <laughs> All right. Well, let's just go ahead and jump in here, Tim. So what's happening in film in 1923? It's been 10 years since our last episode. So we've talked about the 20s last season, but uh, briefly, since our 1922 film was Nosferatu, a German film, we didn't talk about the American film industry much. So let's pick up with that. And so something important happened between 1913 and 1923. That's right. Yeah, and we're going to touch on a couple of things we touched on last time. But one of those, remember last time we talked about how the European film industry was bigger at that time than the American film industry. Well, World War One has happened since then. Or just the World War. The, the World which War. Which is, in this movie, they mentioned the World War. Yeah, which like changed everything. It's like the World War. Well, yeah, unfortunately, it wasn't the only one. No. But it really devastated the European film industry. Understandably. Understandably. <laughs> According to film historian Stephen Ross, before the war, the United States produced slightly more than half the world's movies. By 1919, 90% of the films exhibited in Europe and nearly all of those shown in North America were made in the United States. That's just crazy. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, a boon for the U.S. film industry. Yeah, because yeah. America, we were relatively untouched. I mean, we were involved in World War One, but we didn't have fighting on our, in our lands. And yeah. so the film industry was able to roll right along and really lots of, again, firming up developments of uh, American film industry at this time. We talked about movie palaces last episode, that they were just beginning transitioning from vaudeville to the very first movie palace. According to Wikipedia, between 1914 and 1922, over 4,000 movie palaces were opened. So what, what does it feel like you go to one of the movie palaces? Well, this is an event, like yeah. beautiful architecture, you know, satin seats. They were really trying to go for an upscale, feel, making the movies yeah. feel more like for all classes. But these things are also big. I mean, they're only single screen theaters, but they can hold as many as 1,500 to 5,000 people. For one, one film. Yeah. Which, That's monstrous. Yeah. It, me, it reminds me of um, here in Fort Wayne, there was a giant screen. That, it's no longer really there. Do you mean IMAX or? No, it was just. Rave or was it? It was before, before Rave. Before Rave, okay. Yeah, I remember watching Titan AE on it right in its last days. Interesting. I, yeah, it was over by, how, I think, how, like where Best Buy is, but behind Best Buy. Oh, okay. I know whereabouts you're saying, but I wasn't aware that that was like a mega screen well, thing. Well, in my, again, in my memory it was. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't, but it just seemed like a very big screen and room, very big room. Sure, so sure. So that's what it makes me think of. Yeah. Yeah, different experience. The multiplexes would change all this in the 1980s. But starting around this period, this is when movie palaces were a really big deal and they were really ornate. And I kind of miss that ornateness, fanciness of the Yeah, because movie. most of them are just kind of a... Uh Utilitarian, utilitarian now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you'll, you're going to get a nice seat for sure. I mean, yeah. that's one thing. The stadium seating is a nice feature of yes. modern theaters. 
Anyway, moving on, let's note that the studio system and the what is often called Hollywood's golden age are still a few years off here in 1923, but I do want to note that what's known as the classic Hollywood style of cinema has already begun to take shape. So I guess I don't know. Are there other styles of movie making? I mean, I know Hollywood better. Are there other like official styles out there, like a French style and a Indian style? I believe so. I'm not an expert on some of these other yeah. styles. I mean, we talked last season a bit about New Hollywood, yeah, and and you can kind of see the yeah. differences between the two. And some of these sound like very basic kind of features. For example, there are principles of filmmaking that are still used today that are being developed at this time, such as continuity editing, making it everything feel like it's all in one all one scene. And it all matches together and it's continuous. Right. Also, another example is the 180 degree rule, which is basically if you have two people talking, you know, looking at each other, you want to keep the camera on the same side of them. And a lot of time traveling the same way, like they're going one way, you don't want them going left in one screen, right in another one. Right, right. Which we saw in some of these early films. I think the um, Great Train Robbery had some of that. It didn't have it. Mm. It was going both ways. Yeah, I could see that. But yeah, the sort of continuity, keeping people immersed in the reality that's being shown on film. Um, That's a lot of what those principles are. Now, stylistic preferences that are emblematic of classic Hollywood style are things like having active characters with clearly definable traits and goals. So no Hamlet. Yeah, no, no, ham, no, like kind of, what do I want? Uh, kind yeah. of wishy-washy. Like they, like they have their one goal and they'll get it no matter what. And we've talked about that in various other podcasts. Yeah, overall derail trains of thought. Yeah. I mean, and that's in narratives outside of classic Hollywood, but yeah. it is a very classic Hollywood style trait to have that. Also linear storytelling with a clear beginning, middle, and end. The three acts. The three acts, basically. The only time you do break that linearity is maybe for a flashback, Mm -hmm. Um, but we're not going into crazy inception levels of reality at this point. Also object permanence, which is one of those things that seems like, okay, what does that mean? But like they were really focused, again, on the realism. On Wikipedia, I think they do a good explanation of the of object permanence as as such. The viewer must believe that the scene exists outside the shot of the cinematic frame to maintain the picture's realism. The treatment of space in classic Hollywood strives to overcome or conceal the two-dimensionality of the film, invisible style, and is strongly centered on the human body, meaning that they're gonna really focus on the actors. They're not Keep gonna... you immersed that this is they don't want you to feel like it's an imitation or a play. It's not a play. Yeah. It's a, it's actually happening. Yes. The only thing that's close to play is like like the idea that this is happening in front of you and, and the camera just happens to give you the best view of the action that is currently yeah. happening. And it's interesting because while some of these things seem basic, it's that sort of thing when you have a new medium, you have to just solidify. It yeah. becomes, you learn because you, things you didn't think about because you were, oh, we can film things now. You just have to figure out how it works. Yeah. And I guess if one thing besides what we talked about with New Hollywood that differs from that. Some Japanese style of filmmaking, well, sometimes I've seen this even in anime, where there's a quiet moment, they'll focus on a fountain or leaves in the tree or like some sort of like shot that's not really related to the story. It's but, that kind of moment of pause. It's more of a Japanese. Yeah. A moment of meditation to kind of soak in the day that the characters are living in. Yeah. So that's that's the sort of thing that you would not see in classic Hollywood, but has its, its role in another form of filmmaking. Um, but that, like I said, that is really taking shape at this time in the uh, early 1920s. And it's full scale by the 30s. Yes. Currently, the movie industry is building into the studio system that we will talk more about in the 30s. Yeah. 
Also of notes, uh, historians have noted that there was a loosening of morals in America following World War One, um, as we enter the Roaring Twenties. Yeah, yeah. Pro- prohibition and gangsters. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. And some of this was marked by a number of Hollywood scandals in the early Twenties. Sadly, including some of our stars from last episode, mm. Fatty Arbuckle was in a murder trial. Well, he was <laughs> actually, crazy. yeah, it was a big scandal. He went from America's sweetheart to enemy number one. Although after two mistrials, he was eventually acquitted. Um, and there was also a director that was murdered that Mabel Norman was briefly implicated in. The police cleared her pretty quickly. But still. So there's just this seething sort of like scandals. and Yeah. And there probably would have been a bigger uproar for more censorship as we've seen happen in our film history before that we've talked about. But in 1922, the motion picture Producers and Distributors of America was founded, um, an association. This would later be renamed as the Motion Picture Association of America, the MPAA, in 1945, and shortened to the Motion Picture Association, MPA, in 2019. But this was, again, a association, a private thing, wanting to fend off government censorship. Mm -hmm. And its first president was former Postmaster General Will Hayes, who spoke against public censorship and would eventually make guidelines for studios to self-regulate. It's interesting that Postmaster decided to go get into the... (laughs) Yeah, get into the film... Film business, or film... Not censorship, I guess, but present, how you present your films to the rest of the public. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole lot of history you go through here. But for now, I just want, wanted to note that this was going on because I can't help but think that the decision to make a movie based on the Ten Commandments may have been tied into some of response this to some of this stuff going on in the culture. This World One, like the world spinning out of control. How do we how do we assure the public that we're not just all crazy heathenistic? <laughs> so 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 World One changed the world. Obviously, mm-hmm. changed the movie industry. It changed morality to a certain extent. It sounds like we have the Hollywood pictures taking shape. So that's kind of our moment. Yep. So what are what other kind of big films are happening in 1923? Well, the top grossing film of 1923 is actually this movie, The Ten Commandments, but we'll talk about that more in a minute. The second place was The Covered Wagon, which is a Western film and from what I understand, also a very big budget motion picture. Some other nominations that I had for this week's episode include The Hunchback of Notre Dame, a black and white film starring Lon Chaney, who is a famous kind of character, moody character actor. I think he did some monsters. And also Safety Last, starring Harold Lloyd, which this is the one I was very loath to uh, give up for a while. This is the one I was leaning towards because it has a very famous, iconic scene of him hanging from a clock built into the side of a building okay. of a skyscraper. You might have seen that image before. It's a very classic early Hollywood silent film, daredevil comedy kind of stuff. Nice. But we had just done a comedy. We've got more comedies coming later this season. So we had so. to even it out a little bit. Yep. Some other notable events that happened in 1923 in the film world. On April 4th, Warner Brothers Pictures Incorporated in the United States. We think we'd hinted that that was coming earlier. On April 15th, Lee DeForest demonstrates the phonofilm sound on film system at the Rivoli Theater in New York with a series of short musical films featuring vaudeville performers. There would be a lot of experiments with sound and film as the 20s went on, eventually culminating in 1927 with the release of The Jazz Singer. And then it was all sound from there on out, which we've mentioned before. On July 13th, this is kind of fun, the Hollywood sign is inaugurated. The sign originally said Hollywood Land. You may have heard this before, but it was, I think, originally made more for a housing development. (laughs) And then at some point, a couple decades later, they took down the land. It's like, this is just a Hollywood sign. Yeah, basically. 
And then also on October 16th of this year, brothers Walt and Roy O. Disney established the Disney Brothers Cartoon Studio, later to be known as Walt Disney Productions. It's interesting because all those notable events are basically just like reinforcing that like the movie industry is coalescing into what we know now. We got Warner Brothers, we got Disney, you got all these things starting. Yep. And not all the big studios that became that formed the studio system in the 1930s are here, but there several of them are, including Paramount, which uh, started in. Well, there's some messy history there. They had a big merger with another company called the Lasky Famous Players Pictures Company, which is the company that Cecil B. DeMille helped start. Okay, um, in the early 1910s, and in 1916, they kind of merged into Paramount Pictures with, I think, one other company. But anyway, so yes, some of the big studios are forming up at this time. All right. Well, that's what's going on in the world, or the film world. So what about this particular movie, this Ten Commandments, that I don't think I had heard about until... We started watching it. So, <laughs> so what is this movie? Well, I think we talked about it before that, but yeah. yes. So yes, this is The Ten Commandments from 1923, directed and produced by Cecil B. DeMille. It stars Theodore Roberts, Richard Dix, Rod LaRocque, and Beatrice Joy. The story is by Jeannie McPherson and edited by Anne Bawkins. I want to include some more of these credits sometimes just to kind of reinforce the idea that filmmaking really is a collaborative process. And yes. as important as Cecil B. DeMille is for this the story of this movie, there are other people that worked on it. Um, but this is a part biblical epic, part morality drama, because this movie is divided in two parts. The 15-minute prologue, yes, yes. <laughs> you heard that right, a 50-minute prologue, tells the story of the Exodus, starting with the 10th plague on Egypt, and goes on to depict the Israelites leaving Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, God giving the Ten Commandments, and the Israelites' punishments for worshiping the golden calf. The second half takes place in present-day 1920s and begins with two young adult brothers, John and Dan McTavish, being reminded by their conservative religious mother to follow the Ten Commandments. Dan ridicules his mother's beliefs as old-fashioned, and leaves home with his new girl, Mary, to seek his riches while proclaiming his intents to break all Ten Commandments. John, meanwhile, stays true to his faith and remains with his mother, working as a carpenter. Three years later, Dan has become a corrupt contractor. He hires John as his lead carpenter on a cathedral-building contract, without telling John of his plans to save money by reducing the amounts of cement to be mixed into concrete. Little does Dan realize how breaking all Ten Commandments will wind up costing him everything as his house of sand crumbles around him. You like that? I like that. That was, that was nice. That was good. <laughs> so this is mostly a black and white film, but apparently there were sections of the Exodus that were filmed in two-color Technicolor. So what is two-color Technicolor? Well, and this was not in the version we watched, folks, So, uh, but I did check this out on YouTube later. So basically, I'm not going to describe this very well because I'm not an, an engineer. I don't have a firm handle on this. But think of it as like there's two strips of color, red and a green, okay. that, that that get mixed behind the actual black and white thing. So if you watch it, it looks very, most of it looks kind of washed out. There is color, but it's mostly washed out. And the greens and the reds tend to be the strongest colors okay. in the frame. Not that it's all green and red. So is it a little bit like that color tinting in Nosferatu? No, no, okay. it's not quite like that. I mean, it's, again, it's hard for me to describe. I'll have to show it to you to really okay. see. But it was a thing apparently back then. Yeah, it, again, it was... 
kind of an experimental thing. And like it was mostly there were some scenes of the mass amounts of Israelites that yeah. were leaving in their outfits. I think there was also some of the the Pharaoh's army. There's so some the, shots so of the, those. So the big set pieces tended to be the, yeah. in the prologue. Yes. Any color was only in the in the prologue stuff. And I think the reason why like the version we watch doesn't include the stuff is for modern viewers, I think it would be kind of distracting. Yeah. Because yeah. it does it's not all the way through. And in fact, even the like the parting of the waters, like the water would look blue, but the people walking through look black and white. So it's one of those things that when you're not used to it yet, it might be neat. Yeah. But they're still experimenting. It hasn't been solidified into this classic Hollywood style yet. Yeah. That we're used to. Right. At this point, it'd be distracting rather than like, back in the day, they would have been like, ooh, and now we would have been like, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So the screen ratio is the standard 1.33 over, over one, like all films were this time, the four by three-ish kind of box presentation. From what I could tell, there was probably not an official score for this. The version we watched had an organ accompaniment. Mm-hmm. Um, I forgot to make note down the the name of the guy who did the organ, at least on the version we watched. Oh, yeah, yeah. But you'll hear Janelle talk about that. And my wife, Janelle, who's an organist, she enjoyed the organ in this, I think, mostly. And how long was this? This was 136 minutes. So, it was, yeah, it was a pretty long movie. I mean, yes, I should note since we talked a little bit about feature films last time, again, the feature films have become the dominant form at this point. Mm-hmm. And there have been movies longer than this. Yeah. I was going to say, what is kind of average at this time? Do you know? That, that is a good question. I'm not sure. Is this on the long side or is it like everything's about two hours because they want to get their money out of it? Yeah, I would have to double check that. I don't think it's unheard of yeah. at this point. But it's like, not necessarily super common. Yeah, I don't think... Yeah, I'm not sure. No, no, okay. I'd have to double Anyways, check. it's way longer than when we watched it in 1913. Yes, the one that was just a short. Yeah. We'll get into this a little bit later, but I know the DVD cover kind of was a bit misleading. It kind of yes. talked as if you were jumping back and forth between these two time periods, which it's not. It's really two separate it's things. Two, it's two, yeah. Which in some ways I think was probably more close... I mean... Again, there were longer features, but they still had like multiple things in a okay in a playbill at this time. So that's one reason why that would have felt more natural in some ways. Like this is part one, part two, and we're yeah. used to seeing stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. But when I thought was under the impression that this was going to be cutting back and forth a little bit, I thought that was it was like oh okay, it was taking a little bit after. There's a film called Intolerance from I think 1916, maybe 1919, somewhere around there, that has four storylines that is coming back and forth in between. But that movie was also, that was an an epic of another way. That one was like three and a half hours long or something. Wow. And um, that was D.W. Griffith, the same guy who did Birth of a Nation. Okay. So that's a whole that's a whole thing. Okay. But anyway. So anyways, who cares about this movie besides it has the same name as another movie other people care about? (laughs) Oh, good question. Well, yeah, and, and did it do well? It did do very well. It was the highest grossing film of the year, like we said. It earned $4.2 million at a time when most top grossing films didn't break $2 million. So that's, I mean, it's like blockbuster. Yeah, this is the film of the, well, maybe the decade in some ways, at least that's what it seemed like at the time. This film would wind up holding Paramount's box office record for 20 years. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that just goes, I mean, part of that, I would imagine depression uh, the yeah. decade after this would kind of slow down the amount of like, but wasn't know. Gone with the Wind one of the greatest grossing ones? Well, that was time? 1939. That was 39. That's too late. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. For sure. 
Critically, at least Cecil B. DeMille's biographer notes that the critics raved about it. I did note on Wikipedia that I think it was in Variety, they thought that the biblical story kind of overshadowed the modern one, that it was yeah. just so big that the modern one felt kind of small. So I think certainly the biblical stuff got the most attention. Yes. And then Cecil B. DeMille, how did it, I mean, where does this place kind of in his repertoire this is probably most known as a milestone in his career rather than a stand-up film. From, because the 1956 film would wind up overshadowing this one by yeah. a lot. But I think it's worth making note of how big of a director Cecil B. DeMille was at this time. Over the course of his career, he made 70 features. Whew. 52 of those are silent films. Nice. His first 24 silent features were made in the first three years of his career. Wow. I mean, now, were those, those are probably slightly shorter ones. I imagine that some of them were probably like a little under an hour, but they yeah. still consider them features. Yeah. So yeah. they were still the, the main box office thing. Uh, his career, for the record, started in 1913. Wow. Apparently. In three years, 24. That's eight a year. Yeah. Again, it was different. But I mean, I guess he started off as a stage director when he, when he was hired. He was a brand new film director. But I mean, film itself was brand new yeah, at that time. Yeah. When this movie premiered, he had made 44 prior films, but this was his first biblical epic. And he would go on to make a total of eight epics, and five of those are considered biblical epics. And of course, he would wind up remaking this one in 1956. And just as a comparison to how much the industry changed and how much bigger that movie was. So the budget of this film in 1923 was $1.5 million, and it earned $4.2 million. The 1956 version, the budget was, well, at least what was wound up spent, was $13 million, and it earned $122.7 million. Wow. It was a giant film. And uh, Martin Scorsese is called the 1956 Ten Commandments, the final culmination of DeMille's style. And it was also his last film. And if you think about it, that is like 40 years of making film, starting with in the period when film was in its infancy. Yeah. So Cecil B. DeMille, I feel like, is one of these directors that we may have heard a lot of, but a lot of us modern audiences don't know just how big of a guy he was. Yeah, for 40 years, he's making 70 films. Yeah. And yeah. Only eight of those his films were the epic films, but that became what he was best known for mm -hmm. later on. And part of that is also his reputation. Apparently, I'm going to go into, I was reading about Cecil B. DeMille yeah. this week because I got fascinated by it. He is, in some ways, the archetype for what we what came to be known as the uh, big, demanding Hollywood director. Okay. The guy who carries a megaphone, has a riding crop. He would wear riding, what do they call it? Those pants. Oh, yeah, yeah. pants and the, the boots. And he just would yell and scream at his cast and crew and yet would engender a lot of loyalty toward him. Okay. He was one of these bigger-than-life figures. And that came out in the movies that he would mm -hmm. make, especially later in his career. Even besides the epics, at some point he became committed to always making big budget motion pictures and not just like small little dramas. Okay. I think that really solidified in the, the mid thirties. Interesting. Yeah. Be interested to see some more of kind of his growth. I mean, I, that'd be an interesting kind of trek. Yeah. And he was again, inspirational for, he influenced a lot of how film industry worked after him. He was inspiration for Alfred Hitchcock. Again, Martin Scorsese has watched the 10th commandments like 50 sometimes. Wow. Steven Spielberg called his, the parting of the red sea and that one, the greatest special effect in motion picture history. Wow. So there's, he's one of these filmmakers again, that he's very foundational, but strangely a lot, he's his people built on him. People built on him and the critics, 
at some point became less enamored with his stuff because he was so focused on the big budgets and big box office oh, okay. draws. Yeah. So his strength was in the visuals more than in his dialogue okay. kind of stuff. And, you know, we know some people like that. Yeah, we do. Interesting. His biographer said that he has sometimes been mistakenly seen as the forerunner to Steven Spielberg. It's probably more accurate to say he's a forerunner for James Cameron. Okay. Cameron, the the guy who can really do post-apocalyptic imagery, but his story beats are kind of generic. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it's a good comparison. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the rundown of Caesar B. DeMille and the Ten Commandments. So let's get to what we think about this. Tim, had you heard about this particular film before? I feel like I must have at some point, but I couldn't tell you when or where. Just some awareness that, oh, yeah, I think he did, he had made this movie before this. Mm-hmm. If nothing else, I was very happy to be able to dig into Cecil B. DeMille because of this. Because I, once I started reading, I just found it fascinating. Okay. But the movie itself, I was not super familiar with. Yeah. And I was not as normal. Your knowledge of pre, say, 1950s movies is far surpasses mine so no I, but it was it was uh, another um it was another movie that i told you to watch well and I, hey that's why I, that's why i'm on the show yeah so <laughs> well, and technically you told me to now we should do this one because i was really i hated to give up safety last but I, yeah but it makes sense with the rest of the stuff we got coming on it does all right so let's hear our instant reactions from when we watched it last week okay So, this was a biblical epic film noir. (laughs) Yes. Cinematography was really neat in this. I really enjoyed the film noir style, particularly the modern, quote-unquote, part of it, the 20th century light and shadow interplay. The biblical epic side of things was really cool, too. I thought that's what I was getting into, and then we got something else slightly. Trying to decide if I feel like it, the storytelling was effective or heavy-handed. I'm going to have to think about that one. <laughs> what do you think, Nick? Yeah, it's weird. It's like two completely different movies meld together, mostly thematically. Yeah, the, the biblical epic was very much what I was expecting, but was really not the majority of it. And Yeah, with the second half, I feel like it started heavy-handed, and then like parts of it worked, and like if it had all been, I think it would have rejiggered it and it would have been better. I appreciated at least the desire to tell a story that had consequences for poor choices. I agree about the question of heavy-handedness. I'm trying to decide if it would have been more satisfying to see a redemption happen based on what was being presented and what characters chose to do. It was really long and silent movie storytelling is very interesting. I was listening to the Wurlitzer organ. I think it did say it was an actual pipe organ, so a giant theater organ type of style, and you heard it very clearly with the sound. And it had all the bells and whistles, literally. Bells. <laughs> did you like the music? You commenting on what you heard? Oh, yeah. Um, well, it's very stylized, and not the style that I specialize in necessarily, but I think clearly the organist was skilled at what he was doing because he varied what he was playing according to what was going on in the story. And he had some recurring musical things that he used, especially in the biblical epic part of it. Like there was a sound for the Egyptians chasing after the Israelites. 
and there was this one reed stop that was, I think, consistently being used when Moses showed up. I was noticing the music less during the modern part for some reason. I'm not sure why that is. Maybe it was more subtle. It was more, like, amorphous. I'd probably like it more if I was hearing it live. Hmm. It sounded like it was a lot of work to play. For a silent film, I thought it was pretty watchable. I was impressed by the scope of the sets in the um, prologue, (laughs) I guess. Ah, yeah. The story, though. uh, I mean, it was watchable, but I was like, this story is... I couldn't tell what they wanted to say till the very end. I mean, I I get what they were saying, but it was a lot. (laughs) Yeah, you're not a big silent film fan, are you? I'm not. I don't like silent films. I don't much like black and white, though there are a few I do like. I know. I'm... You may criticize me. I'm not. I've been criticized in the past for my movie preferences. But, I mean, for, for a silent black and white film, it was watchable. I mean, there was a lot going on. There's a lot communicated with just actors. I mean, it sure helps to have the little things to read in between. But there's a lot of story to be picked up on just watching, which is impressive. Okay, so that's what we thought. I hear in our voices this sort of like trying to process how the two halves gelled. Yes, yes. But anyway, let's talk about some of the things that really impressed us. Like visually, this movie is really impressive. It is very impressive. The epic scale in the prologue that we've talked about before, just to put it into perspective, there was a cast of 2,500 people plus 3,000 animals. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, but, some of the some of the, the leaving Egypt, just yeah. massive shots of just endless people uh and even the the egyptian army like all those horses and chariots i know sometimes like you can tell they're just going down the hill like they're just filming like who knows what's going to happen someone gets killed it doesn't matter we're just filming it (laughs) it looked for sure like some of those chariots were uh falling to pieces like i'm pretty sure pharaoh's chariots would have been in better shape than these (laughs) plus the egyptian exterior set this is crazy to me one place I saw said it was like 12 stories tall. Oh, wow. Which I'm not sure about that, but it, at the very least, it was somewhere around 109 feet tall, which is still pretty crazy and like 750 to 800 feet wide. I mean, this is the day when like, if you're going to film something, you actually you, film you it. You built, yeah. You built the thing. Again, Intolerance had some giant sets like this too. So yes, the scale of it and just, and even beyond just the, the size of the crowds and the sets in the prologue, some, the, the drama, of the draw. Yes. Thank you. The, the, the crazy, like orgy style thing that the Israelites are going through with the golden or calf. Like some of the shots of the Pharaoh when he's just sitting there, like after sundown. I mean, yeah, that kind of had that film noir. I know it's more in the second half, but there's some really nice kind of film shadow shots. Right. Right. And, Speaking of the film noir, and again, I, I called it that some of the shots that we had in the second half of the story, some of these very dark imagery. Film noir was not actually a thing yet, so that's really gets developed more in the 1930s, so that's why this was very striking. Based on some of the reading I was doing, that was a kind of a Cecil B. DeMille thing. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, in the day, it was way more common 
for films like you wanted to be able to show everything clearly okay light lots of light yeah i mean it was like a technical this is how you impress people technically you like if you compare it to like the 1903 or even the mabel's new hero yeah you know some of those shots are a little muddier looking yeah. like the the lines aren't quite as clear and crisp so that was kind of more what directors would like to go for and so but sometimes he would do these much darker images basically trusting his process and doing eventually to help sell it better they would call it kind of rembrandt style okay using the using shadows, shadows. as to have shadow and light as, shadow yeah. and light kind of stuff so he was unusual in that regard but some of those shots i think are very effective particularly some of the scenes with dan at the house of his mistress mm-hmm. um there's some Again, really moody lighting, and I remember some some scene. I don't remember now if this was in the Egyptian thing or in the modern one, but where like the characters were framed by the pillars. Mm. Maybe that was an Egyptian thing, but I don't know. It's just interesting when you're doing something very unusual. Like you could tell this is we've moved from the very play. The camera's way back, kind of play yeah. style from 1903 stuff, and even moved on from. We know what we're doing for like a little closer shots, but we're trying to get everything as clear as possible in Mabel's New Hero to now we are learning our technology in a way that we can yeah. do new. We can frame things and, and pull out emotion based on the lighting and the framing. and Yeah, yeah. And, and and find more inspiration from, I guess he, I read somewhere like in King of Kings, there's some, the way people are staged feels very, you know, like a painting almost. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, the visuals are top notch. Yeah, they really are. Now, the other thing we, and you heard us try and talk about earlier, is do the, basically the two parts of this movie that are kind of just smashed together, does it work? Again, I was pretty disappointed that this wasn't kind of a more intricate story like what I had seen in Intolerance, uh, which does it remarkably well. But again, Intolerance was not hugely successful in its day. It was more respected in Europe and Russia, I think, Mm -hmm. (laughs) in some ways. But it wasn't necessarily a Hollywood style of way of doing it. So I guess this is just, and I don't know that they ever had that idea. I guess at one point they had an idea of like they would have like little mini episodes, one for each of the Ten Commandments. Okay. And they decided that would be too much. And this was the more streamlined way of doing it. But yeah, I don't know quite, I still don't know how much I like it. Because, of, because there's two things I think working against it. One is that the first is so big and so epic. And then it's basically three people for another hour and <laughs> a half almost. Yeah, something like and that. And it's a very, you know, and the other thing is that while they're thematically tied in the sense of like obey the Ten Commandments, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of other, I mean, there's a leprosy connection, but there's not a lot of other easily defined like parallels. Yeah. I mean, there's some, but it's not explicit or direct. And if there were, I think it'd be like, oh, this is like this working out over again or whatever. And yeah, so I don't, it just, there's such different styles that I can see why they put them together, but they still feel almost a little bit like oil and water. Yeah. It is interesting. The, the biblical section ends with Moses condemning the Israelites and people dying after the golden calf. It doesn't talk anything about the redemption of those. Who and there left is some of that, that in the end of the, the modern. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we're not going to go into details. This is where we reach the part of the season where we're from now on. We're going to be very try to keep it spoiler free as possible. I don't think it, it is giving too much away about it to say that things do not go well for Dan as he breaks the Ten Commandments. Yeah, um, yes. I mean, it's kind of one of those. I want to say tragedy, but I'll put a caveat in that in a minute. But it's this story of him basically one thing after another going wrong for him because mm-hmm. of his actions. But the girl he had married at some point, 
she gets a bit of a redemption arc yeah, at, she, at the very, very tail end of the, the movie. Yeah, she has more remorse or whatever you want to say. Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, I guess the fact that we don't see the Israelites' redemption kind of echoes what we don't see Dan's redemption. He doesn't yeah, really get true. a redemption. Yeah, that's true. I think, you'd, I think you'd pull parallels out of them, but I don't think it's natural. Uh, it's not easy. You have to think, sit there and be like, okay, how do these two relate? Yeah, yeah. The other thing we brought up, like, is it heavy-handed, the second half? Or not. And I'm conflicted on this one. I still am too, to be honest. I mean, on the one hand, like as a Christian, I can concur. It's like, yeah, if you live a life of sin, you're probably going to face the consequences for it. I I think I agree with what they're saying. Right. But it's, it's one of those tricky things about doctrine that becomes very hard to put in a fictional setting because... Sounds like you're manipulating things. Mm. I mean, at the beginning of the modern story, we can see how the whole thing is going to play out. And that never feels super satisfying. Also, I said I had a caveat about calling this a tragedy in that we never really like Dan. No. To be honest, he's he's not a likable character at any point. So, So, yeah, it's not so much a strategy. I mean, it is kind of a morality play. And I think going to that, the more they play with it, the more they feel like, real characters and it's playing out naturally. I think the hardest thing is when we first switch hard cut from biblical epic is that everyone comes off a little caricature, well, more than a little caricatured and it's very forced. Yeah. And once it, once things start unraveling naturally, it's easy for me to go with it. But the beginning is not natural. The beginning is like, we're setting this up so that we can continue our theme. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, this whole movie started with a contest to see what Cecil B. DeMille's next movie would be. And the winning entry was basically, you don't break the Ten Commandments, they will break you. And they actually say that at some point in the course of the film. So that is, that's definitely their theme from the start, and that's and what I'm they not, went with. I, you know, I have nothing wrong with like even being upfront with, here's my theme, and showing it directly. I don't think you have to be artsy necessarily to show it subtly, mm-hmm. but I think it's just because early on it doesn't come off naturally. And then as it plays out, it, it does more. Like, I know this character, This is, yeah, he would do this. Yeah, this was what happened when he did this. And then you just kind of flow with it. Mm-hmm. I think that's where I've kind of landed. Like, it's not quite heavy. It's, it's a weird spot. Yeah, it definitely is a weird spot. I mean, this is one of those Morales stories that I don't know would probably convince any unbeliever at this point. It's like, oh, wow, look what happened to this fictional character. I better not follow his footsteps. Yeah. I mean, maybe if you're a younger kid and you start thinking, oh, wow, he he skimped on materials. He was dishonest. Yeah. And look at how all the stuff that collapsed on around him. I mean, the other thing that feels a little forced in some way is, okay, the, the deal with his mistress and somehow like he got leprosy. Yeah. Like She had leprosy. I mean, it's a little like unexplained. Yeah, yeah. I can't help but wonder if this was a 1920s thing of doing an STD without doing an STD. Oh. Again, there's then there's that leprosy connection. We see the very young Miriam in the biblical story get, get leprosy. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's ridiculous, guys. She looks like she's 50 years younger than Moses in yeah. this thing. <laughs> so that's yeah. a biblical inconsistency. So I guess there's that leprosy parallel they're trying to go for. But again, it feels like it comes kind of out of nowhere. I think those are the three things we really felt coming done with it. You know, the visuals, great dual storyline. And then the morality, like how effective was it? Mm -hmm. So before we get to what we think about it, do you have a question for me, Tim? Yeah, I think uh, my first question for you would be, there's a late introduction of the idea that 
the mother in this thing who is starts off as a very stereotypical like fundamentalist fundamentalist overbearing mother at some point she says i taught you to fear god not to love him yes if you were to make that idea a bigger theme of this movie how would you do it oh because i think it should be i think that would actually help the movie a lot yeah um i think there would need to be some scenes is john the other brother yes with John and the mother after Dan leaves. Yeah. Because John has the best view of everything. Yeah, he's the one that's most in the right. But unfortunately, yeah. he's also the least developed character. Yeah. And I feel like if you developed him, give him some time to do stuff with his mom and have some sort of another side plot there, you could probably do something where she would... But here's the problem. She comes to that realization pretty late in the game about, I should have taught you to love God. But we never see how she got to that conclusion. Mm. So it's like a nice... I mean, the problem is like... I'm glad it's there because I think it's needed theologically and just for the movie, but it's kind of a deuce like it doesn't come out of anywhere. Like yeah. she, we don't know that she actually ever, f I mean, you can, you can say, okay, she felt it because she felt bad for what she did earlier, but there's nothing on screen. Mm -hmm. I feel like if you did some scenes with John who's hanging out and trying to suffer through having lost his girl and his brother and all and living by himself, yeah. you could do a lot of that. And the mom's maybe being, and he's like, but you could soften her with the John. I think that would, Gut reaction, what I would do. I like that idea because, yeah, I, I mean, the one moment where John was the most sympathetic was the moment where he was trying to woo this girl, then realized that, oh, no, she's into my brother, and yeah. he gives her up, basically. I would, I would love to explore more. Exactly. I think you could, you could do something with that. Sure. All right. Do you have a question for yeah, me? Yeah. Okay. It's going to sound silly, but I do mean it mostly serious. Dan, at some point, says, I'm going to go break all the Ten Commandments. He's like all like jokey and like, mm -hmm. do you think he actually meant it? Like, it, it sounds ridiculous, and he ends up, whatever. But do you think, like, does he actually have a problem with the Ten Commandments? Or is it just, I mean, yeah, what do you think about I that? I think it's mostly as a reaction against his mom. But I imagine he really didn't care about all, I mean, most people don't have, if you're not religious, you're not going to care about probably any of the Ten Commandments, except for maybe the do not kill thing. Most people would say, okay, yeah, sure, I that, know, but he's reasonable. getting married. <laughs> I mean, there's another one in there. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't, yeah, it's, I mean... But he did have this kind of laissez-faire attitude. I yeah. don't know. It's hard to know what the girl thought about that statement. <laughs> it was just, it was a very blunt statement, and we kind of laughed at it. But I'm like, okay, are we supposed to take this seriously? Like, is this something, or is it just him being like a goofy, you know, culture? Uh, or is it something smart that like... Smart yeah. I don't know. It was a weird, I was just trying to figure out how, or what would you replace that with? I don't know that I would replace it. Like, I think it's one of those things where... Someone says it in a smart alecky way, but is actually revealing an inner truth. Okay. Okay. I think that's the way I would read it. Okay. So my second question yeah. for you, Nick. Yeah. We generally enjoyed the organ in this. It yes. was more effective, we felt, than the music in Nosferatu from yes. last season. Um, but if you were to replace it, yes. and you were to do it something less orthodox than okay. what was used at the time, okay. what style of music would you what style of music? orchestrate this for? Yes. Okay, just because I'm thinking about it, but it's a very unique style. I think you need that sort of that dark electronic style from um, Christopher Frankie from Balan 5. Oh, okay. You know, the kind of moody sort of, mm. you know, it's very electronic. It's half electronic, half orchestra sort of. Okay, like half Blade Runner, but not that far. Not, not 80s. Like, okay. Yeah, but like you have that sort of, because yeah, it's kind of that half synth sci-fi sort of deal. I think it'd be pretty interesting. Interesting. Very kind of moody kind of yeah, layer. I think you do stuff. something. Okay. Okay. It's kind of tense and yeah. Okay. I could see that. For both or just the modern part? I think the biblical epic polka. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not really. Okay. <laughs> 
You know, I, I made some <laughs> options in case you got stuck, and that was one of the ones I put. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think polka with the with the death of the firstborn would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Can you do a dark polka? Is that possible? <laughs> I, don't, I don't Weird Al just sings like death metal songs in polka, but it's not very dark anymore. No, no. All right, here's mine. All right. If you you're playing Boulder Dash, okay, you know, get those words. <laughs> okay, yeah. What is juke? <laughs> forget about this so guys he, <laughs> when he's building this cathedral he's using juke which we guess is some sort of like replacement sand like it makes it not as good but apparently it was well known back in the 20s i didn't look it up was that one of the material the building material yeah i think so i thought that was just what the mistress was smuggled into the country and yeah, but that was, she was muggled in in all the building materials that he got cheap from somewhere. Okay, I think it was so juke. Did you bolder die? You trying to convince someone that it, your definition is correct? What is juke? Um, it is a form of cotton that is used for Q-tips. Oh, <laughs> nice. Okay, yeah. So a, a jukebox uh, just puts out <laughs> Q-tips. Very, very, <laughs> very soft sounding music. <laughs> wait, wait, was it juke or jute? I don't remember. I, I remember Juke now, but it's been a week. So. <laughs> and it was a silent film. They didn't say it. That's true. Um, Although we read it, so we should remember. I should know. I should know. Oh, it might, well. Maybe it was Jute. <laughs> Anyways, Tim, let's wrap, let's wrap this up. So what do you think? Did we like the movie? Um, <laughs> to be honest, looking ahead, if we wind up doing a list of essentials like we did for last season... I would probably wind up putting this pretty low on my list of essentials, mm-hmm. at least so far for this season. I think it's great as a historical reference. Again, important Cecil B. DeMille. It really inspired a lot of his movies that came later. But the 1956 Ten Commandments just overshadows this. And I haven't even seen that movie that often. Yeah. Um, so I like parts of it, but not necessarily as a whole. I kind of feel the same thing. There's parts of it I'm glad to have watched it in the sense like, oh, I now know more about this style and everything. But yeah, I'm not sure it's essential. I'm not sure I would recommend it to people who are just like casual movie fans. Yeah. I could maybe recommend just watch the prologue just to get a sense of kind of epic, old-fashioned sure. style. I've seen silent films that are probably less accessible than this one, but I've there are other silent films I would recommend for someone who wants to really get into the that style. There are other ones I would recommend yeah. above this one. So like I liked it okay. Yeah. But it yeah, that's about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh Chumala. It's Chumala. So that's the word my son made up. Okay. It has a very specific definition. It means it was fine once, but not again. That's right. I remember hearing this at some point. And yep. it's like, okay. So yes, that's our rating for this one. Chumala. Chumala. All right. Well then. <laughs> Next time we're off to uh, 1933, jumping 10 years ahead. And we were watching... 42nd Street. We are going for a completely different style. This is going to be a very glitzy, glamorous musical. All right. Thank you for listening. Uh, tune in to our website at derailtrainsofthought.com. Or log in to the, or visit our website. Visit website, yes. I guess I you guess, can tune in. There's a lot of podcasts for you to listen yeah, to that's there. That's true. Follow us on Twitter, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever things. Wherever fine podcasts are found. Until next time, this is Nick. And this is Tim. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.